0: Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would answer some emails. A lot of you email me, and I always try to get to all of them, but I can't these days, but I can get to some by doing some of these episodes. Patron Kate from North Carolina writes in and says, What are the main theories of counseling, or what are your main theories of counseling? I'm currently getting my master's in counseling, and I really admire your technique. What are your main theories? I recognize that you use person-centered, EFT, and psychodynamic, Techniques, but do you also use REBT, DBT, and other theories? Thank you so much for even reading this. I admire your work. Oh, well, thank you, Patron Kate from North Carolina. So, well, the first thing is let's just establish what are the available umbrellas that I will be talking about here. The main umbrellas of theory, and they're different categorizations, but this is mine is we have the first category, which I'm going to just label like the psychodynamic category. In this category, you have Freud, psychoanalysis, relational, psychotherapy, interpersonal, intersubjective. These people are really interested in your past and how your personality developed in relation to your environment and your disposition, your temperament, and how these personality structures become relatively fixed over time, that you have defenses... That you have relationship patterns, that you have distortions of the world, that you need corrective experiences. And so I definitely hold for myself when I'm treating clients and the way I see myself and everyone around me, I definitely see people through a a psychodynamic lens. But psychodynamic theory is literally 140 years old. And so there are a lot of different corners and avenues that Vary from each other. So to say I'm psychodynamic doesn't really mean much until you actually hear me describe how I see the world and and exactly what I do, which is essentially that our early relationships form our defenses, our relational defenses and our templates for seeing the world and our templates of seeing the self and our templates for how to deal with difficulty and our templates for how to get love. And these become relatively fixed can be changed later in life with some difficulty. And that in therapy, there's a lot of transference, countertransference happening. There's a lot of defenses that are taking place. And by having some awareness while having corrective experiences will help and has helped. Uh, so that's one theory that I definitely if I was to pick uh, one, one or two theories, that would definitely be in my top two. The, the next theory that I'm breaking out of psychodynamic theory, which often isn't, is attachment theory. As many of you know, I'm very attachment-based, uh, and the problem I have in my uh, culture, in my uh, you know, discipline, is that a lot of people consider attachment theory to be just for children, but as you know, listening to this podcast, attachment goes throughout your entire life and really affects every single relationship you're in. The relationship you have with the bus driver is affected by both of your attachment needs and your attachment reactivity. Within this um, major umbrella of therapy, you know, there's, really, there's, a, there's not a lot of therapies. You could say psychodynamic, certain parts of psychodynamic uh, therapy are within attachment. But the only one that's really firmly in attachment that is popular is emotion-focused therapy, of which um, I definitely use. Although I will say that I developed my ideas of attachment and human beings before I ever knew about EFT. So I kind of think that um, I'm more psychodynamic attachment based. And then when I learned about EFT, I was like, oh, I guess that kind of fits my viewpoint. The other thing is, is I don't use EFT as a technique. I find the technique to, you know, it's fine, but I I just, it just doesn't fit with me. The ideas fit with me. But again, I think I came to the ideas before I, I came across EFT. But anyway, so, but attachment theory, John Bowlby, I learned early in my career and the biology of that, the evolution of that the reactivity of that, the attachment styles, I think, are useful. Uh, thinking about how we are basically in a constant state of, am I securely attached? Do I have someone that I can depend on? And uh, when you feel that you do have someone you can depend on, then our physiology is balanced, our emotions are balanced, our sleep is balanced, our self-esteem is balanced. So uh, attachment is very important to the way I see the world, if not the primary way. And as you know, when you listen to the podcast, it it, it goes, you know, more, it goes deeper than just the typical surface level that people will talk about on the Internet. Uh, But anyway, so that's the other umbrella. The other umbrella is biology. You know, in this umbrella, we're talking about the brain. We're talking about trauma. We're talking about diet and sleep. And this is also very important to me. It's obvious that, and it's absolutely uh, shown in the scientific evidence, that the way we treat our bodies and, and our brain included is very important in our moods and our relationships and our energy and our self esteem and our ability to function and our symptomology for depression, anxiety, ADHD, and beyond. And so paying attention to diet, sleep, exercise. Um, And then also how trauma, how trauma manifests in the brain, how it, um, you know, what fires together, wires together, all this kind of stuff, Uh, mirror neurons, all these kinds of things are very important that go way beyond just psychotropic drugs. Of course, that's included in here, too. But, you know, that's only like, you know, in my estimation, 3% of this umbrella, the rest of it is all the other things I've been uh, rattling off. So I definitely use a lot of ideas from biology and from evolutionary, not evolutionary, anyway, I I use a lot of biology. (laughs) The next umbrella is systems, which I also use, uh, which includes structural, Bowen, Satir, Whitaker, lots of different other kinds of systems, family systems, theories. The, The main ideas here are that Groups of people will coalesce into a system, a family, a couple, a classroom, a workplace, and the system wants to establish a homeostasis. And the homeostasis is the set of rules that dictate everyone's behavior. When someone is afraid, who do they go to? You know, when when the when the group needs a leader, who steps forward? And who pressures the people to step forward? An example of this is when I'm with my family. I have a large family, and we get together. And I I noticed this when I was in my 20s that we'll be at Wajamaya here in Seattle, it's a Japanese grocery store, and we'll all just kind of be standing around talking. And at some point, I'm thinking, well, I know everyone's hungry, so I th- I think we should probably go eat. But I don't want to I don't want to bother anyone. Everyone seems to just be happy just sitting here talking. But then at a certain point I stepped forward and I I just felt like we'd been standing for too long in the you know, the uh rice cracker aisle talking and I said, All right, let's go to the let's let's go to a restaurant and eat, or let's go to the food court and eat. And then everyone just Okay, let's go. So everyone was apparently kind of waiting for someone to step forward, and I was the one who stepped forward and then Throughout my life, throughout my adult life, I just knew that I was at least one of the people among the, you know, 20, 30 people in my extended family that will step forward and push to the next phase and that other people will never do that. There are certain people that who will never, ever suggest we move on to the next phase because they're being too polite, which is a very Japanese American thing, too. But uh, I apparently don't have <laughs> that entire <laughs> quality of, of Uh, harmony all the time. I'm like, no, no, this is boring. We're standing in the rice cracker aisle just standing. We're blocking everyone's access to the rice crackers. Let's move to the food court and eat because I'm hungry. And I'm sure you all are too. And so uh, (laughs) this is a systemic idea that how did I step forward? Is that because of my personality? No, it's because the system needed someone to step forward and do that. And this, of course, applies to all the little interactions that you uh, exhibit or feel motivated to do in any system, whether it's rebellion or overfunctioning or failure, all of these uh, behaviors can be conceptualized in a systemic through a systemic lens. In that the person isn't motivated by purely internal means; they are they are motivated by how they fit into their system, what uh, what the system needs. For example, the system might need someone to distract everyone from the pain that everyone's going through. And so that person might step forward to be the star of the family. That person is the delegate, the person who does well in school or sports or at a job. Or you have another, you know, there might be a little narcissistic. Another person might step forward and be the rebel and be the the screw up, and that distracts the family. You know, that's just another example. And there are thousands of other kinds of functions and roles that families will Exhibit, And individuals will exhibit. And so this is family systems. And, of, and the other major idea is mutual causality, circular causality, nonlinear causality, recursive patterns. This is these are all labels to describe the same thing, which is that when it, we typically look at things linearly, linearly, like when we see someone, uh, we see a couple you know married married couple and we see the husband is like yelling and screaming at the wife and we look at that and we say well something's wrong with that guy he has an anger problem or he has depression or something he needs to be medicated or he needs his own individual therapy he needs anger management okay that might all be true but you really need to look at the system at least the two person system of the marriage what is the back and forth between those two people maybe over the span of a month or years there have been various different interactions between the two people that push both people to what we end up seeing in the end. So, for example, if we go back in time, uh, just even earlier that day. So, late, so by evening, we see a yelling husband at a wife. We go back to the beginning of the day, and the husband wakes up and he's a good. He's in a good mood, and he goes to the wife and he says, "Hey, I have all these plans. I want to, I want to, you know, mow the lawn, and I want to clean the garage." And he has all good intentions, but he doesn't really process Sunday, you know, the weekends days the same way the wife does. The wife thinks of weekend days as relaxation time. The husband thinks of weekends as getting stuff done time. And so the husband goes, oh, I'm so excited. I want to clean the garage. You know, let's, let's do it. Let's do it. And the wife is like, oh, this sounds exhausting, you know. And she just says, well, can't we just relax? And she says it with a little bit of criticism, a little bit of contempt. Not a lot, but just like annoyance. Like, do we really have to? And the husband is hurt by that uh, attachment wise. He he feels insulted. He feels like the wind is being, you know, out of his sails. The rug's being pulled out from underneath him. He he was on a roll. Then all of a sudden he goes to his wife and she gives him this face. And although she's perfectly fine uh, and valid to, allocate or to advocate for that to just be like look it's a sunday i want to relax i don't want to do those things she doesn't really know how to communicate that in a way that doesn't hurt his feelings he also might be overly sensitive and then he gets hurt and then he then he goes you know and he storms out of the room and he communicates that he's upset by giving her the silent treatment for an hour and she now is upset at him because she's like he always does this to me why can't we just relax on a sunday like how come he's always like demanding that i do things And now she's hurt, and now she transforms that into some hostility, and she starts slamming doors, and then he starts slamming doors. And blah, 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 escalation up the ladder. By the evening time, he's screaming, and she is quiet because her way of showing her contempt is to be quiet, and his way of showing his contempt is through yelling. So we see there that the way the two of them were triggering each other, if you will, is uh, what we need to look at we can't just look at his behavior and go there's something wrong with him we have to look at the dynamic between the two and and we have to address the dynamic between the two neither is to blame both are to blame it doesn't matter who's to blame the system is to blame we don't have to look at things linearly we can look at things systemically or how recursive circular nonlinear patterns develop in people and contribute to all the woes that we have in life whether it's in relationships at work with ourselves so Systems are, uh, I definitely adhere to you as well, to answer your question, patron Kate from California or North Carolina. Number five is multiculturalism, um, uh, social constructionism, feminism, all the uh, isms that concern themselves with society and power and oppression and internalized oppression and uh, racism and sexism and ableism and all the other isms. And systemic problems in society, historical uh, problems that contribute to the, our current problems, political problems, money problems, economic problems that, you know, uh, class problems. And so all these things affect how we feel about ourselves, our, our interactions within our relationships. And these things need to be considered. The relationship between the therapist and the client needs to be looked at through a feminist lens through a social constructionist lens through an oppressive lens a class lens because the therapist is often in you know has more privilege than the client does not always but usually they do by their education and their place in the room and without having a critical eye on that power structure in the therapy office bad things can happen and Continued oppression can happen. Clients can feel like they don't have power and they just sort of give in because everyone agrees that the therapist is a god and the client is a peon. And that's just in the therapy office. I mean, think about all the other uh, contexts in which this can happen, obviously. So this is a very important thing to look at. Similar to systems, uh, if you don't see this, if you don't zoom out and, and look at people through these contextual issues, then you're completely missing a huge part of what's affecting the individual. The sixth umbrella is the cognitive psychotherapy, cognitive psychology, which is the idea that our interpretations, the stories we tell ourselves, schema therapy is, is kind of in here as well. Um, But it's also kind of a psychodynamic and attachment based uh, idea as well. But anyway, cognitive therapy is obvious. Um, The way you think about things, the way that you, and this is REBT you mentioned earlier, uh, Kate, is usually considered a um cognitive or behavioral therapy but i think it's more cognitive in my opinion but um and by the way i don't like the fact that cognitive behavioral therapy is lumped into one it doesn't make a lot of sense that it is i think it's important to to tease the two of them out cuz you need to underst- you, you can certainly integrate the two of them but you need to understand both of them well before you can integrate them but anyway the idea that our interpretations our automatic thoughts our belief systems Affect the way that we interpret things and thus affect the way that we feel about them and then affect the way that we uh, react because our feelings motivate a lot of things. So in looking at the world through a cognitive lens, our interpretations are very important and we need to make sure that we have some control over or at least evaluate that and have some control over our interpretations. For example, um, going back to this couple... You, we could look at the wife uh, or, we, or we could talk to the husband. So the husband gets up in the morning. He's just like, oh my God, I, you know, I, I, I can't wait to get on the day. It's just so great. And so he goes to his wife he says, yeah, we're going to clean the house. And, and she looks at him like, oh, do we have to? Okay, so in that moment, his cognitive interpretation, his cognitions about her, her face, about her rejection of that idea are very important. If he looks at it in a way And this can be hard to exert control over, but it is important to look at. But if he looks at the situation like she's rejecting me, she doesn't love me, she is being a lump on a log, she is purposely trying to foil my plans, then, of course, that will lead to a lot of hurt and thus a lot of sadness and then a lot of transformation into anger and hostility and then slamming of doors. Whereas if he interprets it like, well, you know, she doesn't like to do things on Sundays like I do. And she's a little scared that if I force her to do it, then she's going to res- resent that. And so she's she's kind of pre annoyed by that process. So, uh, so if you see it that way, then you then you give her a little bit more grace, a little bit more uh, leeway, a little bit more charity, and you're just like, oh, uh, okay, yeah, that's right. Um, you don't like doing those things on Sunday. That's cool. Um, even though she didn't give him that information, she just gave him an annoying face. But if he had, if he thought about it or could interpret that correctly, then he would have less pain and thus less reason to be hostile and less reason to trigger her. So cognition, and it really, this cognitive idea spans literally every single problem you've ever had. There, there's, um, There's always an element of cognitive therapy that can be utilized in these moments, whether or not it's the best thing to do in the moment. I don't know, but, but the way we interpret things is very, very important. Um, Now we don't always have control over that, but it's important to, to evaluate that. Then number seven umbrella is we have behavioral therapy, which is, you know, all also obvious. Every, every, you know, anyone who knows about anything, (laughs) Uh, Even five-year-olds understand behavioral uh, therapy in a nutshell, which is that when you reward something, then people tend to repeat that behavior. And when you tend to give a bad consequence to something it tends to uh, negate the behavior or if you don't or in the absence of a reward, you tend to not do that behavior anymore. Right. And obviously, when you're training your pets, this is a. Known thing, but humans are the same way. We're just a little bit more, not always, but you know, sometimes we're a little bit more complicated about it. So, for example, getting back to our couple, the husband says, "Oh, I can't wait to get today. Hey, wife, let's go clean the garage and let's mow the lawn." And in that moment, the wife has this goal. She's like, "I don't want to do thing. I don't want to do anything today. Uh, but I also don't want to uh, piss him off, and I don't want to make it so that he can't ask me." for help. So what do I want to do here? Um, This is also getting back to Bowen, you know, differentiation in systems, but anyway, so, but uh, what do I want to do here? Well, what I want him to do is feel free to do these things on his own, but I also don't want him to pressure me to do these things. So what, what's going to be my set of responses so that I can encourage good behavior from my husband uh, now and in the future so what do i do well uh, if i give him annoying face i don't know if he's going to interpret that quite right and uh, and part part of that is going to be me punishing him just for being excited me punishing him just for asking me for help or something me punishing him for just having a plan for the day and i certainly don't want to punish him for that but I also don't want to have to do these things. Okay, so what do I do? Well, I might go to him and say, "Honey, I love your enthusiasm, and I love that you want to do these things. Um, but I, I really, really, really just want to relax on this Sunday. And is that okay? You know. So, it's looked at through a behavioral lens, you're you're trying to you're trying to shape behavior from your husband in a way that actually meets your overall goals. Now, sometimes you can't really figure that out on your own. You need a therapist to, to help you with that. But that's, that's the general idea of behavioral therapy. Now, of course, you can be much more micro on that, like you're trying to train a 10-year-old to, um, you know, you're trying to potty train someone uh, younger than that. Or, you know, anyway, point is, is some, some kids, you know, it takes a while given developmental issues for them to be potty trained. My point is is that there are obvious behavioral elements to our, all of our lives. Uh, the, 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 our eating patterns, you know, are often dictated by behavioral ideas. Also, exposure therapy is in this um, in this zone as well. Uh, behavioral therapy and exposure therapy and trauma therapy is definitely a behaviorist idea. So that's another umbrella that I absolutely incorporate into my therapy. The eighth umbrella that I incorporate is the brief or postmodern category. Here we have solution focus narrative. Milton Erickson, Jay Haley, uh, strategic therapy, this kind of thing. The idea is is that – well, it's hard to really – collaborative is another word to be used in here, and some people wouldn't lump all these things together. But the idea is is that people have the ability to fix their own problems. Uh, You just have to help them find their solutions. So a a common example in solution-focused is someone comes to you and and they're – so let's say the husband – comes into therapy and he's like, yeah, my wife, you know, she's just such a bummer. And she just sits there and she, she insults me and she just annoy She's like always annoyed with me. I don't understand. Like I was really happy and she just, she just got really crazy with me. And you'd say to him, okay, so, so you're saying that it didn't go well for you that morning. Um, so tell me what happened. Tell me the sequence of events. And he says, well, you know, this happened this happened. And you say, okay, well, when, when was a similar, when, you know, tell me about a similar situation in which it didn't go that way uh, where it went well or neutral and he says well okay and you have to, sometimes it takes a while to figure this out but the husband is like well you know it." there's this one time where I was um, you know I, 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 I came to my wife and I said I want to do these things but if you don't want to do it that's okay and things tend to go you know tended to go a little better that time I don't know um, and then the therapist says, "Oh okay, so in that instance, you managed to get what you wanted because your behavior was a little different than the time that you told me about earlier. I see so it sounds like it sounds like you know the answer to your problems it sounds or it sounds like maybe you have some experimenting to do in terms of what kinds of so it's this notion of uh you're just a kind of like a coach for the client to find their own solutions that they've found in the past." Now, this is its limitations, of course, and, and I would never use this purely with clients. But it is a helpful uh, technique. Of my, it's really a mindset that you f- that you have, and it's really hard to adopt. And a lot of people will study solution-focused or narrative, and in my view, they don't really get it because it's, it's a very different way of thinking. It's very hard to think like a true solution-focused therapist. Most people do not think like solution-focused people where you truly – let go of as a therapist of any notion that you have any idea what other people should do. And it, and it's, it's hard not to be that way. Almost every other therapy type, uh, there's this notion that the therapist knows more than the client with solution focused people, narrative people. They do not believe that they don't, they don't fake they that they literally believe. I do not know anything about how to solve these people's problems. They, they already have the answers. They have just been told they don't understand. They don't have the answers and I'm just going to help them to find it. You know, it's, it's kind of a version of, I know better than them, but you're really, it's anyway, I can't go down that road. It's, it's too complicated, but I definitely use that, that technique and listen to my episodes. I think I did a whole deep dive on narrative therapy and I've done some episodes on Erickson as well. Uh, the ninth umbrella, which is the only other umbrella that is in my field which i also integrate is humanistic which is a huge part of the way i see the world it is, you know in in this category we have experiential gestalt rogers maslow Satyr, whitaker lots of others uh existential these therapies you know they're very different but they basically hang together in this idea that you want to be you want to focus on the here and now uh our future tripping or Thinking too much about the past, uh, lingering in the past too much, can really keep us from being who we are and knowing who we are. Uh, it distracts us from who, who we are, because who we are largely exists right now. Who am I right now? What is my body going through right now? And a lot of us growing up have not had enough practice with that, because our parents didn't help us with that. You know, When you have secure attachment, attunement, then the parent has a lot of energy spent on like, how are you feeling right now, child? Oh, it looks like you feel hungry right now, or it looks like you feel happy right now. And the child is like, huh, that's who I am. Interesting. Because when you know who you are, this is that sense of self thing, no connection with yourself. When you know who you are and your connection with that from an early age throughout your life, you are in connection with your needs and thus you're in connection with your road to happiness and your road away from pain if you aren't in connection with yourself you're not if you're not in connection with the here and now you're not in connection with your needs which can be hard to do if you don't have a lot of practice from early childhood then you literally have no no uh, roadmap to happiness you don't know what you're supposed to do you're just randomly behaving hoping that something will make you happy but that is not an effective way to gain happiness right so so being in here now has something to do with that. It also has to do with being authentic and being okay with who you are that's another big part of humanistic therapy is you're okay you don't have to be different you're good as you are, and it's this idea that you have uh you know the ability to heal yourself you need you just need the barriers to get out of the way the a bar- the barriers imposed by your parents or bullies or society or racism or sexism. We need to get rid of those things and you'll be able to find happiness because you know you know what you need and you know how to get there. And let me give you a lot of unconditional positive regard. Let me listen to you. Let me validate you. And and in that space of exploration in the here and now and what you need and who you are and uh, who you know, what your goals are or how you see yourself in in that space of safe reflection on who you are, then the self can figure out their own answers to their own problems. But uh, you can't really get there until you have that person centered humanistic space, existential space, where you're really just allowed to be who you are. And anyway, so there's a lot of Variants to that, but humanistic and it's very emotional focused. Um, EFT is also an, a humanistic uh, therapy in that um, you know humanistic ex- experiential Gestalt Rogers are are very interested in emotional expression. It's I think one of the major foundations of humanistic psychotherapy is this idea that you uh, people throughout their life, particularly in mainstream American culture, have been told not to be not to be emotional and That can cause a lot of strife in emotions, in depression and anxiety and relationships. And so humanistic therapy tends to be very interested in how do you feel? You know, tell me how you feel. Because it's this assumption that unless the therapist really draws that out, the human won't actually exhibit that because they're terrified of all the shame that they typically get from that. So whenever I talk about, uh, you know, advocating for people crying and just saying, hey, it's okay to cry. It's a human. That's kind of a humanistic idea. If I was to pick one theory of the nine that I rattled off when I talk about, that's a humanistic idea. The, the healing nature of just being who you are. The healing nature of of allowing your emotions to come out and not shaming yourself for having them. Right. This is a very humanistic idea. Anyway, so those are the nine umbrellas. So for you, Patron Kate, you're just like you seem like person-centered EFT and psychodynamic. Well, I'm everything, (laughs) and you know when when I talk to my and I really am, and I have been for a long time. Part of it is that I'm a professor and have focused on theory uh, my whole career, and it and it's taken me 25 years to get to where I am, and I have a long way to go. But studying theory, I'm I'm a nerd for it, and I've dedicated a lot of my professional life to becoming proficient enough such that I can quickly rattle off these nine theories in in brief uh, you know if obviously to really go into them it would take me days but uh and students will say well kirk i don't have all that you know i i have to practice now i'm an intern now or i'm a postgrad now i don't i i barely understand even one of those theories so what am i supposed to do well what i tell people is being a therapist is a lifelong learning career so and uh, and you cannot rely on graduate school to teach you everything about being a therapist. That is just fact. That's a fact. <laughs> no one gra- who just graduated with their master's or doctorate is good to go. <laughs> I mean, there is so much left to, to learn. Can you be an effective therapist? Yes, science shows that, that people at their internship right out of graduate school are, can be very effective when it comes to outcomes. So you don't have to understand theory in, in the way that I do, to to be helpful. But you do have to have a system for understanding where you're at, and that has to do with conceptualization, with um, understanding, with developing hypotheses as to what the problem is. You have to be systematic about conceptualization, which is a whole other skill. And if you kind of understand one of these theories enough, then you can certainly do that. But So it's a matter of understanding conceptualization, understanding how to develop intervention plans, understanding how to develop treatment plans, understanding countertrans, you know, relationship. Oh, that's the other thing I should get into is, you know, when I talk about the relationship and when they talk about the relationship in the literature, they're talking about positive regard, empathy, um, rupture management, alliance. This is all kind of a humanistic psychodynamic or attachment based idea. Anyway, so um. Yeah. So what I tell people is just set out as a graduate student to learning the rest of your career and knowing that until you study on your own for 10, 15 years, you're going to be kind of lost in a lot of ways. And that's just OK. You know, do what you can. Uh, you, you know, can know how to care, know how to listen, know how to have empathy, know how to have, pos- you know, these are things that aren't complicated. I mean, they're kind of complicated, but learn how to really listen, learn how to avoid telling people what to do with their lives. Cause that that's not often a good thing. Learn how to understand your kind of transference. These, these things can be done. You need a fair amount of mentorship and, and uh, consultation with this. But anyway, my point is, is when it comes to theory, I think, in my opinion, every therapist is responsible for being a nerd about theory their entire career. And it's reading books. It's going to trainings. It's uh, The best thing you can do, honestly, is get a supervisor or a consultant, and you pay them, who specializes in that, in whatever you're trying to get to know. So if there's, like, a feminist therapist and you're just like, okay, I really want to know feminist therapy, the best way is just to hire that person, talk with them once a month. And consult with them about cases and you'll get that sort of ground level you know where the rubber meets the road kind of application of feminism to therapy anyway i'm rambling uh when i get back let's take a break (laughs) when i get back let's continue reading emails hey deserving listeners as you all know i am constantly recommending that people go to therapy we all need therapy from time to time well, one of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp. If you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to BetterHelp.com Kirk. Make sure you use the promo code Kirk because you get 10% off your first month, and it really helps us out. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist, which is great because you deserve it. And I know also that it can be hard to find a good fit, find the right one for you. Well, one of the options available in terms of your shopping is to go to BetterHelp.com Slash Kirk. I've been told you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message your counselor at any time. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. I've also been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy. And you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide. So go to BetterHelp.com slash Kirk to get 10% off your first month today. All right, we're back from the break. I want to do. I want to give an announcement that we are offering a two thousand dollars scholarship. I think it's two thousand dollars. Last time I checked. Don't quote me on that. I'm only ninety percent sure of that that it. The deadline for the applications is June fifteenth. We've been promoting on social media, but it. Re, you know, Stacy, my wife, has been like, there aren't a lot of applications, <laughs> and uh, you know, two thousand dollars. That's you know, it's a lot of money, and so. Uh, you know, we want to give back to the, to the listeners or back to society. Uh, a, lot, a lot of you are patrons of the podcast. And so we, as a group, patrons and the podcast want to help people out. And we've given out a number of scholarships uh, over the years. And this is uh, our current scholarship. So if you or you know someone who is a graduate student, and so it's, it, this is mainly a scholarship for graduate students in psychotherapy. So you know it's marriage and family therapy, mental health counseling, psychiatry, psychology, social work, these kinds of things. Uh, graduate degree not be not a bachelor's degree uh, is the preferred now, if you have a bachelor's degree, that's okay, but you're probably you know not going to be on the top of the list so so uh, you have a pretty good chance of getting it, or if you know someone, then they have a pretty good chance of getting it because we have not received very many applications. <laughs> So (laughs) it'd be nice if we had, uh, you know, more applications. So, uh, tell your friends, tell everyone to just go to our website. There's a scholarship application page. It's pretty short. We don't ask people, write Like full on essays, but, but you do have to submit something that's, you know, beefy. There's three main questions that we ask. We ask, you know, what have you done to help society? Um, what are you going to do to help society? And why do you think you need this money over other people? And uh, but, you know, even if you're not super desperate for um, like, you're not going to we've had we've given scholarships to people who are literally about to be kicked out of school because they couldn't come up with tuition next quarter. We had a doctoral student that was like that. And our scholarship helped her to, um, you know, complete her her doctorate. But um, so you don't have to be necessarily in that position. But anyway. So spread the word, because you have a pretty good chance of getting it. The other thing I want to announce is that I, uh, this month, the next couple of months, my life is going to become real busy for a lot of random reasons. I mean, uh, I won't go into full details, but part of it has to do with my uh, work at the university. I'm actually wrapping things up. I'm transitioning to a adjunct position. It's complicated, but um, I want to spend more time on the podcast that's the main thing and so i'm actually scaling back at the university quite a bit a lot and i uh so but because of all the just the tremendous amount of work that i have to do over the next couple months i'm not going to have a lot of time to do deep dives or anything but so a lot of the episodes are going to be kind of like this where i'm kind of speaking off the cuff which which i know not everyone enjoys which i get some of you love them, some of you don't. This survey had mixed results. <laughs> I mean, I personally love deep dives myself the most as well. Uh, so, uh, when I actually get to July and August, my life will be I will have, I presumably will have so much more free time to do deep dives and stuff. So, but the next couple of months, things are going to be a little uh, frantic for me. And so, I hope that you're okay with episodes being a little unprepared. (laughs) I mean, you know, uh, I I try to keep the quality up a little bit, but just, you know, I hope that people are okay with that. All right, let's move on. All right, this next email, interesting email from patron Duncan from Scotland. He says, after listening to your episode on Bowenian theory, I realized that I clearly have a deficit in my external differentiation. There was a high level of judgment and control exerted over me and my siblings, I believe, due to my parents' fundamentalist religious beliefs and to my mom's highly preoccupied attachment style. Despite leaving home at a young age, COVID has brought me back many years later, and I have been trying to see this as an opportunity to to dig deep into my childhood wounds and emerge a stronger person. If Bowen believed that your differentiation clock stops when you leave the family home, could an extended return to that environment provide people with a second chance i'm working my way through the book extraordinary relationships at your recommendation but was wondering if you had any personal insights to add on creating differentiation with your family my own hypothesis actually credited to lengthy discussions with my friend stacy also a massive fan around bowen's own family of origin work was that at once it was that at its core Bowen simply had to stand up to his family and show them and himself with pride that he was his own person. In my own case, creating differentiation might then include things like firmly resisting and meshing and controlling and intrusive behaviors from my parents or expressing myself in their presence in the same way that I do around my friends and strangers, like being upfront about my values, etc. Does this fit with your thinking? End of email. I love this email, patron Duncan, and shout out to your friend Stacy from Scotland, because there are so many things in here that demonstrate you're smart, you're wise, you're a fan of the podcast, you're even doing things that I've recommended, (laughs) which I have to remind everyone that they should go to therapy and not rely on the podcast for that, but uh But yeah, so let's go through this email. On one hand, so you're saying that you you lack external differentiation. So I think what you're referring to is the two levels or two dimensions of differentiation are we could refer to as internal and external. Internal is the ability to differentiate between our reasoning and our emotions, and the external differentiation is to differentiate between self and other. So it sounds like you uh, have a deficit in that meaning I'm guessing that you, particularly with your parents, have a hard time standing up for yourself. You have a hard time knowing that you're not responsible for other people's feelings, this sort of thing. You also talk about growing up with a lot of judgment and control exerted over you by fundamentalists, parents, and your mom's preoccupied attachment style. You also mention that Bowen believed that your differentiation clock stops when you leave the family home. Yeah, I don't know if Bowen would say that with that much uh, certainty. Certainly um, contemporary Bowenian people will hold that, including myself, that you can absolutely raise or lower your baseline differentiation level through uh, differentiation work and family of origin work, which I'll get into in a second, and your circumstances can also temporarily raise it or lower it. So it's not like you're doomed at the age of 18. You can certainly do a lot in therapy and other kinds of things. You also say that you bought the book Extraordinary Relationships, which is a wonderful book that is both good for clinicians and lay people about Bowen, and Bowen ideas. It kind of walks you through everything. And it sounds like you're benefiting from that, too. That's great. I'm guessing on Amazon you can get a used copy for very, very cheap. You're also saying here that you know for Bowen, he needed to stand up to his family and show them and himself with pride that he was his own person. That's a wonderful uh, way of putting it, uh, Duncan. I hadn't thought about that, that uh, or hadn't put in those words. But yeah, I mean, that is a fair summary of what Bowen did t- so that he could differentiate. And the idea, if you don't know, if you haven't listed all the other deep dives on differentiation in Bowen, that when we can differentiate from our parents and our family meaning that we can be ourselves while being in contact. I mean, because anyone can just run away from one's parents. But the idea is is that you want to stay in contact with your parents emotionally and, you know, seeing them while also re- remaining in contact with yourself. So that's differentiation, the ability to stay to say I am me and they are them and I'm in a relationship with them, but I'm me and they are them. And also that translates into the ability to differentiate between your emotions and your thinking ability, which gives you much stronger control over uh, enacting your goals in life. You know, meaning that if you, if you, if you become frequently flooded with emotion that washes out your ability to think straight, then it's hard to make decisions in life that don't shoot yourself in your own foot. So, uh, so anyway, yeah, for Bowen, standing up to his family, because he came from a seemingly enmeshed family. And so for him, a big part, and everyone's different, but for him, a big part of it was not allowing his family to overpower him, not allowing their triangulated processes rope him into things that he didn't really want to do. And when he did that, when he differentiated in that way, it actually translated into a lot of other personality benefits that didn't have anything to do with his family of origin. You also mention here, that for you, you're, you're, you're wondering, hmm, maybe for me, my version of family of origin therapy is resisting my parents as they try to enmesh with me and me- resisting my parents as they try to control me, resisting their intrusive behaviors against me, having boundaries with them. And that very well could be true. I don't know. You would obviously have to find out for yourself, and you'd be better off talking with a therapist in person about this, obviously. But, yeah, that it's, it's very possible. And but the key is is how do you do it? And I've worked with a lot of people. It's family of origin work is very complicated. And um, and you also mentioned that because of COVID, you've had to move back home. And is this a good opportunity? Yeah, it is. Um, with a lot of clients, what we're working on is when they go home for a vacation or something or for a holiday, and that's when they have to do it. So they have to try to do these family of origin work things in those brief periods, but if you're home all the time, then there's a, there's a lot of opportunity for that. And the, the way that I explain this to the client is the following. I mean, I usually go into more detail, but just in brief, I will say something like, so when you go home, there's this thing that you can do and it's called family of origin work. It has to do with differentiation. I might explain all that stuff. And the idea is, is that when you go home, there are two kind of main prongs that you want to address one is that you want to get to know your parents as human beings as best as you can and one of the best ways that you can do that is to ask them questions about their life about their childhood about their current life because this has a an ef- has a number of different effects one is is that it puts you on their level on a, you know and for some people they're like look I'm Chinese I'm never going to be on the you know because american white Americans not always but they tend to be more cool with being peers with their parents you know whereas other cultures like Chinese culture not all of them but uh, many will say there's no I, I my parents will never allow me to be on their level so it doesn't have to be purely as a peer but but more, you know, friendly, like, like you're all adults, maybe that's a better way to put it. It's like approaching your parents instead of you're a child. And even though you're 40 years old, uh, not approaching them like you're a child, but approaching them like you are a family member who is, you're both adults. And so you go to your parents and you just ask them questions about their life. You know, how are things going? Um, you might even get into their childhood, what it was like growing up, this kind of thing that can also be wonderful. And uh, through this, you actually differentiate and uh, so how do I explain this? Um, well, anyway, the the other prong is what you're talking about, Duncan, which is so so one prong is to approach your parents and have all these relational experiences where you're, you're a, an adult, fa- a fellow adult family member. The other prong is boundary making, essentially, which is uh, pushing back during times, but You also – you don't want to just push back. You want to push in in ways that you want to push in. So, for example, they come at you and they're like, so we are uh, all going to make dinner tonight together. And that's what we're going to do as a family because that's what we always do as a family. And you're busy. You don't want to do that. Or, I don't know, you just don't like doing it. So you say, uh, if you're – you know, depending if this is a kind of a rough example, but it's possible in that example, you would say, uh, "Nope, I, I, you know, I don't really want to do that." I, you know, I appreciate that you want me to do that, and I'm sorry, but um, you know, I don't really like making dinner with everyone. It's too chaotic. It seems like there's too many cooks in the kitchen, and and I, I feel like everyone's just bossing me around. And I, you know, I just I just don't want to do it. And thanks for the offer, uh, but mom and dad, what I would love to do is go for a walk with you. After dinner, because I love going for walks with you. Okay. So it's differentiation. Family of origin work is not just pushing back on parents. (laughs) It's not just telling them to go to hell. Okay. It's about connecting in a way that is more an even playing field where now they might say, I hate going on walks with you, but they probably won't. Right. A lot of people when they do family of origin work will interpret it as letting their parents have it you know, getting kind of like revenge, like I've been intruded upon my entire life, and I'm not going to take it anymore. And that's a part of it, for sure. But if you just want to reject your parents, then you can just call them up and say, go to hell and just don't visit them, you know. But if you really want to differentiate, differentiation is about being who you are, while being while being in loving relationships. It's not just about being who you are. At least this is the contemporary Bohenian uh, notion, or at least the way I'm interpreting it, is that Differentiation is the ability to have boundaries, to be who you are, to be able to push back, to tell people what's up, to be upfront about your needs and and your complaints, but also being loving in a way that you want to love by telling people, this is what I like to do with my family members. This is how I want to be loved. This is how I love you. This is how I want to be with you. I want to be in contact with you. Just, I want us to negotiate how we are in contact with each other. I just don't want it to always be your way because I don't like your way all the time. So let's figure out a way that we both can love each other at the same time. There's got to be some Venn diagram overlap in how we want to love each other. You want me to cook dinner with you. I don't want to do that. I want you to, you know, watch football with me. You don't want to do that. But, the two of us like to go for walks for each other, and so let's do that, you know. That's what family of origin work. And so those two prongs. So on one prong, you are you know, establishing boundaries, and on the other prong, you are working on becoming more friendly and more of an adult relationship with them. And often what that means is, uh, like I said, investigating their past. The, the sort of golden zone on family of origin work is asking your parents about what it was like when they were growing up and your parents are just like, well, you know, I was born in this zone and my dad was sort of this way and they're just going off on history. A lot of parents really want to tell you that, particularly if you are coming across as non-judgmental. That's the key. You can't go to your parents and say. Tell me about your childhood because I want to figure out why you're such a bad parent. Like, you know, you can't say that. (laughs) Parents generally want to share their lives with their kids. Now, some parents are really uptight about that, so sometimes it's hard to do that. But that's sort of the golden zone. What I have seen happen when people do all these things, and it can take a long time, and it's not easy because you can lose differentiation very quickly as you head into these relationship interactions, is – you rinse and repeat this process enough and you do it well enough and you do it such that your parents don't run away from you as you're doing it, people emerge on the other side much more differentiated, much more able to to know who they are and what they want, less intimidated by other people, more sure of themselves, more able to love, more able to non-anxiously be in love with other people and to tell people what they want, You know, to call up your parents and say, I love you and I want to spend time with you instead of constantly being on your heels trying to react to their agenda on you. You know, the ability to to approach them with power, with an adult, you know, mentality. And this translates not only, you know, just your to relationship to your parents, but to relationships with everyone. The ability to push back on your boss, the ability to know who you are, the ability to uh, love another person fully, or at least, you know, as fully as you can without being too worried about losing your sense of self in the process. So this family of origin work, you know, and then some people say, well, what if, what if my parents are dead? Well, you know, there's ways to do it and you can listen to my family of origin episode. I think I did it a long time ago. <laughs> um, let me take a guess as to when that would have been. Well, sometimes I just need to look it up. I'm going to do it right now while I'm talking to you. Dopey dopey doe going to my website. So you go to the list of ep- Episodes. Uh, Page and I'm going to type Control-F or Command-F if you're an Apple user. So that gives you the ability to search if you didn't know that. And then I type in uh, Family of Origin. Family of Origin. So that episode was about five years ago, and it is called Family of Origin Work, and it is only for patrons. Um, I I wonder if I also did a a foo thing because sometimes we will – you know, family Virgin F O O foo. No, I did not do an episode. Anyway. So, uh, that is my answer to that question. But patron Duncan from Scotland and Stacy, uh, the two of you are, um, very wise, very smart people. Let's answer another email. All right, let's do speed round. Cause I have so many emails and I always feel so bad that I don't get to everyone's email. So I'm gonna do a speed round. We have patron Steph from Massachusetts. She writes, what do you think of the true crime TV's frequent claim that a spouse or parent of a murder victim didn't seem to be grieving or seemed unaffected is further evidence of their guilt? Yeah. So this is a frequent uh, misunderstanding of grief that actually can cause people to end up being wrongfully convicted. Namely, the um, uh, if you've heard the joke, you know, my baby ate my ding or a dingo ate my baby. A <laughs> baby ate my dingo. Uh, it's actually a really tragic story about a woman in Australia, I believe, who uh, actually a dingo, which is a small dog, actually ate her baby or, you know, uh, took her baby uh, into the night into the bushes and ate her, ate the, ate the child. And because the mother, according to people watching on the news when the mother was being because it's a very sensationalized story and all these is in the 70s, I believe, in. 80s, and all these movie or uh, news cameras are falling around. And because she, the mother, did not exhibit enough uh, of what seemed to be normal grief to them again, think about uh, a month later after your baby has died, and you're trying to walk to your car, and there's a bunch of news cameras in your face you, you, you're not going to be very happy about that. And so, because she didn't exhibit what people thought she should be exhibiting, then uh, this actually led to her being convicted of murdering her own child, uh, and went to prison. And years later, was exonerated because they found more evidence that absolutely showed that uh, she hadn't. And the the case that she had murdered her child was propped up on extremely dubious evidence. But anyway, the case of uh, Amanda Knox could absolutely be argued that uh, because the you know Amanda Knox in Italy was not exhibiting what people thought people should exhibit after a crime is evidence of guilt is is absurd. Uh, it, you know, you have to go through something like that to understand what it's like, and it varies. You know, everyone reacts to grief differently. There was another case, actually, that I talk about. I give I've, I give a whole presentation, on the, I have a whole lecture on this, of a father who came home and his trailer had burnt down and his kids died inside. Tragically. And when the uh, first responders arrived, the father did just seem to be talking in a matter of fact manner. He, you know, He's like, yeah, I came home. The, you know, it was engulfed in flames. I didn't see my kids. I, I don't know what happened. And the first responders in their, you know, lack of expertise on grief decided that he must be guilty. You know, the police officers, because what you know he's not on the ground like writhing in pain you know people deal with grief there's there's denial there's shock there's um you know there's a lot of different reactions to grief and and a lot of grief reactions happen internally they don't they don't show up on your face (laughs) and they certainly don't show up to first responders when they come up to you and go like what happened right so this notion on tv and in our society that says that you know i don't know that person didn't seem to be grieving or they seemed unaffected by that is a bunch of crap and a lot of it is prosecutors looking for their own and police officers you know the justice system you know they're they're highly motivated to find the killer you know to find the perpetrator which is good but that often will cloud them to um you know the process of proper investigation and they'll they'll use shortcuts and one of them is to utilize this cultural notion that they know will actually go over well with the jury that the person wasn't exhibiting what they thought to be normal grief reaction after the event, which is just completely silly. Now, can can a guilty person who, you know, say someone murders someone and they call the police and say, oh, my God, my wife fell down the stairs and she died, even though the husband pushed her down the stairs, can someone exhibit behavior that could indicate the possibility of guilt. Yeah, you know, people have a hard time lying sometimes or they fake grief or maybe they're because, but but just the f- fact that someone is unaffected or seems unaffected to, uh, frankly, a bunch of lay people uh, arriving at the scene doesn't say anything. I mean, y- you would you could use it as part of a thousand pieces of data to bu- build your case, but to build your case completely on that, which is what happened in Australia. I think her name was Lindy Chamberlain. Uh, You know, the the entire investigation was based on the fact that she, according to people watching the news, was not exhibiting normal grief as news cameras were being shoved in her face months after the event happened. All right, uh, lightning round. Patron Alex from Utah says, how do I create good relationships with social anxiety? I'm 21 years old and I've never kissed a girl and I feel like I don't really have any friends. Even though I've been trying to start uh, new positive habits. I continue to fall into old negative ways of thinking, and the habits never catch on. I try to think positively, like I've learned in therapy, but I feel like I'm just lying to myself. End of email. Well, patron Alex, I'm good. I'm glad you're in therapy. Continue to go. You might, you know, benefit from a second opinion, maybe a different approach. Um, you know, so if you find yourself still struggling. Even with the current therapy you're in, it's worth finding another approach to your social anxiety. There are a lot of different approaches. Some work better for others and some don't. But you're asking, look, I have social anxiety. I really want to have friends. I want to have romantic relationships. And I'm guessing you become extremely terrified and have a lot of negative thoughts that get into your head. And then you have negative habits like avoidance of others and and other kinds of things. And it's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if social anxiety was easy, we wouldn't have it in the DSM. You know, social anxiety is debilitating. It's awful. It It's a real thing. You know, a lot of people are just like, ah, you're just kind of shy. You just got to get out there. It's like, no, it's not that easy. <laughs> it's rough. It's, it's on the level of, like, OCD or something, right, or, like, major depression. It's, it's you know, it gets trenched entrenched in there, and it's hard. and It's physiological. It's not just, like, a thought of, oh, what if I make a fool out of myself? Your whole body gets thrown out of whack. And so... The, the key is cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, it could also be related to other things like traumas and attachment-based things. But at the very least, you need to be thinking about your automatic thoughts, your core beliefs, your schemas, mm-hmm. and challenging those. And you also have to be doing a lot of behavioral therapy, meaning that you have to expose yourself to things very slowly. Uh, what's happening for a lot of people with social anxiety is they their body – so let me give an, another uh, parallel example. For me, I suffer from what's called illness anxiety or what people call like hypochondria or something. And I don't have a huge case of it, but enough. And I uh, will, for example, when I, in the past, so, you know, rewind the clock 10 years and I have to give a blood sample or someone's going to give me a shot or something, a vaccine. I, my body, even so my mind is like, everything's fine. I I know enough about medicine and I trust, you know, medical professionals enough to know that, Everything's going to be fine. And, and even if things aren't fine, I'm sure they could fix it. Or even if I, you know, die from this vaccine, like, you know, that's just life. People die sometimes, you know, you just can't really get away from it. And so my mind is like, there's really nothing to worry about here. There's nothing, there's nothing rational about how my body is so terrified in this moment as I uh, contemplate going to the doctor and giving a vial of blood for a blood test of some sort. Uh, But I'm, but I'm, uh, but my body, which is 99% of who I am, you know, outside of my prefrontal cortex is utterly, utterly terrified right now. I, I, I can't stop thinking about it. I can't sleep. I, I'm, you know, I'm shaking. I, you know, I'm, I'm confused as I head into the hospital. So, so uh, my mind knows one thing and the rest of me, the 99% rest of me knows a different reality and will kick and scream all the way into that doctor's office and, and then the the downside to this is that I'm, I'm mildly traumatized by my own anxiety because I every time I go to the hospital or a doctor my body goes into complete panic and so it furthers that association with hospitals and doctors with danger. And so it just gets worse and worse and worse. So what I did to myself is I slowly uh, through a, a lot of meandering you know twists and turns, Uh, exposed myself to medicine procedures so that my body will get used to it. I will become habituated. That's the behaviorist term. I want to become habituated to the stimulus, which is going to the hospital or having a shot or having a procedure or something. Because my body is not used to it, and I need to get my body used to it. And once my body is used to it, it'll catch up with my mind, which is telling the rest of my body everything's going to be okay. So with social anxiety, it's the same procedure. You have to habituate to social experiences. Your your prefrontal cortex is likely saying, this is my problem. I have this excessive anxiety. It's not rational. I'm too worried about this and the other, and it's preventing me from being able to just walk up to people and talk to them or just you know interact with people. And the cure for that is habituation. So you have to have a lot of social experiences. Now, how do you do that? Well, There are various different ways to do it, but one way is to, you know, gradually work yourself, you know, up the ladder. So you start with something extremely low risk, but will cause anxiety, but it's extremely low on the anxiety scale. My dog is barking and you uh, habituate to that level. And then you take a step, another step forward and, and you do a bunch of things in that zone and you habituate to that level. And then you just keep going down the, down the line and eventually you're at the, the top rung of the ladder and you will habituate to that and then everything will be better and you your your body will catch up with your mind. So that's the key. And if your therapist isn't doing something like that with you, I might get a second opinion. Alright, this next email is also from patron Steph from Massachusetts writing in again. Uh, she writes I related I relate to almost everything about avoidant attachment when you talk about it. But your attachment deep dive posits that fundamental that a fundamental aspect of avoidant attachment is that when a child isn't getting their needs met they have to choose whether it is they themselves or others who are bad and avoidant people choose that others are bad however i have a schema of defectiveness myself but avoid people as a re- and, and avoid people as a result is it possible for my for avoidantly attached people to in fact believe that it is they themselves who are bad or by the clinical definition of avoidant attachment is this possible And the defective schema suggests some other pathology or deficit like avoidant personality disorder. End of email. Yeah. So again, I really love this question. It means that you're really learning and you're investigating the self and learning about the self. So the first thing I'll say is that it's less important that we have a label for it and more important that you understand the underlying structure, which you seem to do. You seem to understand that you have a defective schema, you avoid people as a result, and you're like... I, I kind of feel like I'm a I'm avoiding attachment but am I avoidant personality disorder cuz that's really a different thing avoiding attachment style very different from avoidant personality disorder as, as a concept um so you know I, people get real hung up on the labels and it's way more important to understand the underlying structure you know just saying someone's avoiding attachment doesn't really say much you really have to know what sort it is you know there's there's literally a million different presentations of avoiding attachment. So um, it doesn't really tell us much. But given what you said, it's possible, and again, talk with a therapist about this, that one could conceptualize your situation as, so you, you definitely say you have a scheme of defectiveness. Okay, so that means I believe that there's something deeply wrong with me, and I believe that other people don't have that. You know, whatever sort of deep, dark, horrible thing is about me, other people generally don't have this. There's something different about me. And if people knew that, uh, you know, this terrible thing about me, they would understand just how defective I really am inherently. Okay, so that is very different from avoidant attachment style because avoidant attachment style people tend to be more in the narcissistic spectrum where they believe that they're special and that other people are the defective ones. So this sort of lends itself towards this idea that you actually might be on the preoccupied spectrum or disorganized spectrum and the defectiveness is a part of that and that you, in fact, avoid in a way that is similar to avoidant personality disorder as, a, as opposed to avoidant attachment. Avoidant, avoidantly attached people will avoid relationships consciously not because they're, they're, they're they think there's something wrong with themselves. It's because they don't think they need anyone. That's the reason why avoidant attached style people avoid closeness and emotions and vulnerability and that sort of thing. And they're pathologically independent is because they literally consciously think that they're fine on their own, that they don't need other people. They don't have needs. They often will say, I don't have emotions, this kind of thing. And they do, but they avoid that, that reality. So it doesn't sound like you really fit that. Now, maybe you do, but to have a schema of defect, defectiveness tells me that you are aware of the vulnerability that you have, you know, the, the, those those kinds of feelings. So, yeah, it could be, you know, that a therapist might conceptualize you as avoidant personality disorder instead of avoidant attachment. You know, for some people, they can be so preoccupied that they actually will avoid. And a lot of people get hung up on this idea, and it bears repeating that some people will say, like, well. You know, I I really relate to preoccupied attachment style, but I also really relate to avoidant. And once we get into it, not always, because some people can have aspects of both. There's nothing wrong with that. And so, and people get re- really hung, hung up on that too. They'll be like, I have I have preoccupied and avoidant. What am I? I'm like, you have both. It's you know, it's fine. <laughs> There's four categories in attachment you know theory. Not you know seven and a half billion people aren't aren't going to fit neatly into each category. It's fine. You, you have you have a little bit of both. It's, it's okay. Uh, you can also be literally all four of them, kind of, you know what I mean? So, uh, but often what I find when people are, when they claim to be mixtures, is that they're better conceptualized as someone with preoccupied attachment who will, when they get pushed so far, they will avoid. But they are deeply preoccupied with relationships and their way of coping with that is to just Call off relationships every once in a while because they just can't take it anymore. Avoiding attached people, they just consistently avoid. They just default almost all the time to pathological independence. All right, another email. Patron Helena wrote in and says Is it possible for a person with narcissistic personality disorder to love you and to have a fulfilling long term relationship with them? End of question. Yes, absolutely. Do not listen to the internet. The Internet is full of some of the most destructive misinformation on narcissism uh, around. So, uh, you know, just 99 percent of everything on the Internet is just completely false. They're basically talking about psychopaths or it's people basically just making up stories about other people that paints other people in a bad light. It's it's actually a big problem. And. Uh, it actually interferes with people's ability to understand their spouses because they see their spouse through the Internet lens, which is not helpful. But, yes, <laughs> people with narciss- people with any personality disorder can love you, can have empathy. People with psychopathy and sadistic psychopathy and dark triad, no, and dark tetrad, no, they probably can't love you. But these people are extremely rare. Uh, narcissistic personality disorder is more prevalent, and they absolutely are capable of love and are capable of empathy as much as anyone else is. It's just that they are impaired on their empathy because they're so desperately defended because they learned they need to uphold a narcissistic veil in order to uh, get through the day because they're suffering so much. All, it doesn't mean that they can't hurt you. It doesn't mean that they might not have any empathy towards you that you can notice, you know, but. They are capable of that, and if they're, if they, the key is. So then you say, you know, is it possible to have f- fulfilling long term relationship with someone with narcissistic personality disorder? The answer also is yes, but the key is, and and uh, you might not be able to engineer this. The key is is that the person with narcissistic personality disorder has to feel safe. And that's true with any personality disorder. If the person feels safe, then they then they will not be symptomatic. If someone with borderline is feels safe, which might be hard to you know engineer then the person with borderline personality disorder will not lash out at you. If a narcissistic personality disorder person feels safe, feels attachment security, which again can be very hard to engineer, then they don't have to, they don't have to grasp at narcissistic supply. They don't have to uh, stomp on you in order to make themselves feel better because they feel safe. Now for some people with personality disorders, it is extremely difficult to make them feel safe, particularly if you're their spouse If you're a therapist, you have a much better chance in the beginning. But even then, it can be very, very hard. So is it possible? Yes. Is it likely? I don't know. It's case by case. All right, this next question is from patron Dave from California. He writes, "Uh, you mentioned how you started teaching at Antioch nearly immediately after graduating. What advice do you have for therapists who want to teach at a university in addition to their clinical work? I know that university teaching positions, adjuncts and full-time, are incredibly competitive but I wanted to hear your insight specifically regarding MFT or counseling programs. How difficult is it to teach at least part-time and how important is it to have a doctoral a doctorate degree? What advice do you have for aspiring MFT professors? Yeah, so what I'll say is that I don't know every university in the United States particularly around the world, but I do know a number of universities and I had I have heard enough experiences to be able to say the following, which is Uh, In order to get, there are two, there are two main routes to getting a job as a university professor in MFT or counseling or psychology, or social work. One route is the traditional route. And that is usually by getting a doctorate degree and uh, starting to apply. Um, And also in your doctorate degree, you want to, you want to specialize in something you want to have a good resume, you want to have a well rounded kind of thing. Um, You want to, get experience teaching as as best you can maybe assistant teaching this kind of thing and so this is the and then you just start applying usually what this route will require is moving like a lot of our uh, professors in my program at the that came to us from that angle where they just uh, were you know normal you know hey we we have a new doctoral level professor that we need to hire and this you know catalog goes out and people start applying from all over the world and then we interview people and we hire someone. Usually those people had to move to Seattle because to find the best candidate that happens to be looking for a job, it's usually not going to be in the town that you're in. And so that's that route. So the downside to that is you got to move. But maybe that's a plus side. The other route uh, to getting a job as a professor is through essentially networking, which is essentially how I got the job, which is that I was I had an advisor who became my mentor, and he him, he, he, and I just bonded, and he just decided that I was going to teach. <laughs> I didn't even want to teach, and he just said, okay, you're teaching. I'm like, okay, because I just saw him as like this golden ticket to a better career, and, and I was right. And so um, now I could have approached him and befriended him and got him to believe in me and then asked him, hey, could I assistant teach or could I start teaching? That would have been the more... A regular route. And so a lot of, so, you know, I was director for a while. And so a lot of, I, I hired people in both ways. I hired people by the cattle call with the, you know, looking for people all over the country and, and then they moved to the to uh, Seattle to, to work. And I also would find students in my program who I would stay in touch with after graduation. And then I would say, oh, I need someone to teach this thing. You know, I bet you this one student that I know that I've stayed in contact with or my my mentee or my supervisee would be a good candidate to teach this class. You know, I'll ask them and then, or or they've been bugging me saying, hey, if you need anyone to teach this class. So, so those are the two avenues. And uh, you can do both. You can do one or the other. And uh, yeah, and the key to the second route is to be in frequent contact. So if, if you become, uh, and you have to be in contact with the person that makes the choice to hire. So it's usually a program director. And so you got to know that person's email address or phone, you know, maybe take him out to lunch and say, look, I want to teach all these classes. The next chance you got, you know, give me a shot. I know, you know, you can even, I, I'll even intern as a teacher, I'll assistant teach for free for a while to kind of learn the ropes." Um, and then every three months, six months, you just keep bugging them. You say, "Hey, you know, just wanted to reach out to you. I'm taking some trainings. You know, I got some uh, more skills because I, I taught a, a luncheon class at my agency the other day, and I just really love teaching. And I I feel like I'd be good at teaching this and that. Um, you know, uh, those people you stick with it, and you have the talent. Um, usually, you know, you get a shot. Maybe as an adjunct, and then as an adjunct, you will uh, be chosen." a couple years later to become full-time, that kind of thing. All right. Well, that does it for that episode. I didn't get to as many emails as I hoped, as always. And everyone out there, and again, tell everyone about the scholarship. Go to our website. June 15th, 2021 is the the deadline. $2,000, I believe. Actually, let me look it up. (laughs) I'm on the website. Scrolling to the top and going to scholarship. And then, yeah, June 15th. $2000. So they can fill out the form there and maybe win. Oh, wait, we have more we have more questions. So references, how have you made the world a better place, how do you plan to make the world a better place in the future, why do you need this money, and just another question like what else would you like us to consider just other kinds of things anyway. And everyone out there, please, please, please take care of yourself and take care of others because we all deserve it. We really, really do. <laughs> We'll